Wayne H. Williams, and this is I Am Royalty Radio. One summer night, James Byrd Jr. was walking home from a party at his parents' house. Along the way, the 49-year-old African-American man accepted a ride from three white men in a pickup truck. He knew the driver of the vehicle. This proved to be a fatal decision for Mr. Byrd. The men drove to a lonely country road and then pounced. They chained him to the back of their pickup truck and then dragged him three miles to his death. In the studio today, we have author Joyce King, who will discuss her book, Hate Crime, the story of a dragging in Jasper, Texas. Ms. King, welcome. Thank you for joining us today on I Am Royalty Radio. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor to be here to talk about this. So this is a very powerful book, and when you hear the story, you may think that this happened in the Jim Crow era or mm -hmm. during the Civil Rights Movement, but this was actually 20 years ago this month on June 7th, 1998. Can you That's tell us correct. about how you got involved with this, this project? I was actually a news anchor and reporter for CBS Radio, and I, at that time, was based in Dallas at KROD Radio. And my news director wanted to send me to Jasper to cover the three trials. I did not want to go. Right. I, was, I had a lot of racial baggage I was dealing with. And I was just griping and complaining and whining to anyone that would listen. I don't want to know the gory details. It was a case I knew it would break my heart as I thought it would break the hearts of millions, anyone that got near it. And also, I had a childhood of being in East Texas with law enforcement, uh, dealing with my parents, my grandparents, and others that I knew. And I did not want to go to the piney woods of, of Southeast and East Texas. So, um, so you're, you're a native Texan? I am a native Texan. I was born in Houston. I uh, spent part of my childhood growing up in Louisiana. So very much a Southern girl. Uh, a long history of, of dealing with law enforcement, dealing with injustice, dealing with racism, and Jasper was the last place I wanted to be, the last place. But I did accept the case, and um, from the very first moment that I got there, I said, well, I've, I've got to do something to connect myself. And I decided to go to the road where Mr. Bird was dragged for three miles. And that was almost the first thing I did when I before, before I even checked into my hotel. I went to the road, and I made the mistake of doing that in the evening as it was dusk, and it was about to become dark. But readers don't know that there are two roads, Brian. There is a logging road, which they carried him approximately six-tenths of a mile. And the logging road is so heavily shrouded, it's like being in a cave. Okay. There's no sky once you're in there. Right. So they were very secluded and isolated. This was only wide enough for one car to travel, as I later discovered. So you go up the logging road, which is not even a paved road, and at that point, there's a strip that's wide enough for the truck to turn around. That's where they got out to take a smoke, and that's where they beat him, and they, they got him subdued. He was put on the chain at that point, and then they turned around and began to drag him out, out of the brush, out of the thicket, and then they made a left turn onto Huff Creek Road and continued for what would eventually be the rest of the three miles. Right. So it was um, 
it was very distressing and disturbing to, to walk that route because I tell people, imagine you're in a car on the freeway and you see your exit is two miles away. You get to it very quickly. Right. On foot, it feels like you're walking an eternity just for one mile. And I thought, oh, my God, a man was dragged. Right. And at one point, Mr. Bird came off the train, and they stopped and put him back on. It's horrific. It's, it's unimaginable, the pain that he had to be going through. And readers do not know the details. And one of the details I gave them that I learned from covering all three trials was James Bird Jr. was alive part of the dragging because he was trying to keep his head up off of the pavement when they did get on Huff Creek Road, which is a paved artery. Uh, the logging road is more sandy, loamy, you know, grassy kind of uh, backwoods road. But once they came up onto that paved road, that was another story. Right. And so to, you know, listen in all three trials, they were not tried together, so it was three trials that took up a, a year of my life in 1999, you hear the forensic pathologist give this shattering testimony. And, and a lot of people ask me, what was the hardest part? For me, the hardest part was, was going to see the photos of Mr. Bird, which we've never shown in open court, by the way, out of respect for his family, and to listen to the forensic pathologist give these details. And he was on the stand forever in right. all three trials. So, so it really became, it became my life. Sure. That's interesting. You mentioned a forensic pathology. We had one on our last show, and she described this process of preparing for a, a, a case. Mm -hmm. So this is an interesting connection between these our two recent shows. But talking about your experience with the story, you went out there essentially as a reporter yes. to talk about this, or to, to report on this case. And I find in the book that you became a central character in the book as well. It became sort of a memoir. That's right. And that kind of drew me in. Because it's not just a true crime mm -hmm. novel. It becomes a very personal story for you. And I want to I explore that some more uh, after we come back from the break. We'll take a break right here. You are listening to Unmasked on I Am Loyalty Radio. We're in the studio with author Joyce King. We're discussing her book, Hate Crimes, The Story of a Dragging in Jasper, Texas. Stay with us. So tell us about I enter the story totally to engage the reader. Here are the background details. These are the main characters, and this is what is happening. But around page 50, I enter the story, and I that shocked people that read it because they were like, what are you doing in the story? Well, I'm walking down Huff Creek Road. Right, right. And the decision I made was because people would be afraid. I wanted them to have company. I wanted them to be able to see it and experience it through my imagination, my eyes, my ears. I want it to never leave them alone on the page. I mean, I'm asking readers to do a very difficult thing. So what I wanted to do was say, I will be with you. I will not leave you. I will explain things to you and almost sort of be a buffer for you for the hard things that we are going to have to do to get to this 
point or the next point or the next point. So I tried to put up those little signs and let people know we're going into difficult territory. Now we're going into more difficult territory. So I think Joyce King, the character, had to come into the story. But as I said, the title has fooled a lot of people. Right. I mean, I, I got death threats and hate mail from people that never read it. Right. They flipped in the back of the book and they saw a black woman and said, oh, I know what this is all about. You're just going to blame all white people for Mr. Bird being dragged. But that's not what I did. So until you read it, shut up. And I right. told a lot of people that. Right. I think you did a very <laughs> very good job of that. For s if you have not read the book, um, I, I, you, you, it's a must read. It's, it's important as far as discussing racism and violence mm -hmm. in our country. This happened 20 years ago. But you can see even now it's 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 surfacing again and something we need to uh, address and, and, and reckon with. Mm -hmm. And by you becoming a, a character, it did make it accessible um, to me. And it also, for me, humanized what reporters do because yes. you, you think of them being detached and completely objective, but it showed that these stories do affect you on, on some level. Absolutely. And uh, you reported the story, but you said, you know, this became a personal journey for you as mm -hmm. well. And it's something you can share with. With, with many people. Well, I, I, I've had people that give a bad rap to media all the time. I had a, a lady jump up in my face uh, one day after court was out in Jasper. I think it was at the first trial. And she said, all you reporters are the same. You just travel in packs and you jump out at people. I said, I promise you, I've never jumped out at anybody. Right, right. I've never stalked anyone. I'm a very thoughtful reporter, a very respectful reporter to give uh, interview subjects their distance, to try to not harm or do injury to anyone. And so I, I, I know a lot of reporters just like me. They want to get the story right. They want to make sure that they present it. And see, I also have the weight of not only being uh, the reporter from Dallas who was working for the CBS station, I was also the voice of the network in New York. So all CBS stations were depending on me across the country. And then as a third step, I was doing reports for Texas State Network. I was working around the clock when I wasn't in the courtroom. And I, I got messages from all over the world. We would like to have your voice on the BBC in London. We would like to have you on Canadian radio, New Zealand radio, Ireland radio. So I felt like I was never, I never stopped working. I was simply in the hotel when I wasn't in court. And so reporters got a bad rap for a lot of stories over the years, but they were very thoughtful in Jasper, right. especially for the Bird family. So we'll talk about this next because you were, you were pretty much voluntold to do this story. If I got that correct from the book, it's not what you wanted to do, and it had been mm -hmm. a pretty transformative point in your life as well. But on the other side of the break, we'll, we'll talk about that. You're listening to Unmasked. We're here with author Joyce King. Please stick with us.
Welcome back. I'm Dr. Brian H. Williams, your host for Unmasked. We are here at I Am Royalty Radio Studios with author Joyce King discussing her book, Hate Crime, the story of a dragging in Jasper, Texas. So as we were discussing before, you were kind of were violent told to go do this story. It's not something you wanted. You didn't chase after it. And also after a point in your life, there were some transformations happening. That's so right. can you tell us about that, please? I had been working for CBS Radio in Dallas as a news anchor, and I was uh, very arrogant about it. I was not a reporter, a street reporter. I was in-house. I was not having to go chase any story, and I was suddenly fired. Um, and when I say fired, um, I was told after midnight the next day that my contract was ending, and they decided not to renew it. And what really angered me, me is we talk about diversity and inclusion. I was the only African-American on the air. And for them to decide we don't want an award-winning news anchor anymore who's winning awards, I thought there was something wrong with that. And not I don't want to be kept by anyone because I'm black, but because I'm good. Right. And because you told me you were about diversity. So I was really angry. I mean, I had a pity party. With Hagen Dazs, you wouldn't believe. <laughs> I was everybody that said something to me got negative blowback, and my children were walking on eggshells. My my then husband, who uh, ran, you know, almost ran the Associated Press at that time, he was also a journalist. Um, you know, he came home one day. He said, "Ken, stop griping." He said, "He said you you're going to find what you want to do." Long story short, CBS hired me back after five months and <laughs> at a demotion, and I took a pay cut to become a street reporter. So I, I felt somewhat humiliated. Right. So I still went in with a chip on my shoulder thinking, this is so wrong. Why am I being humiliated in front of my colleagues when I didn't do anything wrong? I had not been at KRLD, which was our sister station, I think two weeks before Jack Hines calls me into his office and he said, you know about the Jaspers. I was like, Jack, everybody knows about the Jasper story right. because it had been a few months since the dragging. So this was January 1999, and I'm just starting with KRLD, and he says, well, I want to send you. Well, there were veteran reporters clamoring right. to go. They wanted to go. They were saying, why are you giving it to her? She's new. He right. said, no, she's not new. She's been with CBS a long time. And I then accused him of choosing me because I was black. And how did that discussion go? It, not very well. Okay. <laughs> because you're in a position where I'm sure many black professionals feel as if... I'm getting know, the black story. You're getting the black story, but also you're not getting the recognition for the That's work right. you're doing. You're being kept around because... But you want to use me on the other hand. Exactly. And, I, and so he and I had, had a not a shouting match, but a, a very loud discussion. And at the end of it, he was tired. And he said, well, you have two choices. You can go to Jasper or you can go home. And, and once again, I returned to haagen and I told my husband I was going to quit. And he said, no, you're not. He said, because I work for the Associated Press, I'd send you. He right. said, if I were your boss, I'd send you. So I was mad at him. <laughs> and I thought, well, whose side are you on? He said, Ken, I'm on your side. Right. He said, but you are that good. And I didn't think about it that way, Brian, that I had been chosen. And sometimes we run away from the character assignments the most that are meant for us. Right. And then we see it. I, I should do this. I shouldn't be trying to let someone else do it because of my childhood fears about East Texas. I have, you know, fears about law enforcement. I've never had a ple had, at that point had never had a pleasant experience with one. So I did not want to be there. And finally, I packed 
I left for Jasper, and um, I went to the road where Mr. Bird was jazzed and had my evening walk. And it was at that moment, it was a giant epiphany. Right. That I basically said, I was sent here to do this, and now I'm going to do the very best job, not just for CBS Radio, not just for listeners around the country, but for my family, for my church, for my community. I wanted people to know what really happened to James Bird and through the perspective and lens of another African-American who could be his voice somewhat. Right. And I can feel in the, in the book, you can feel how troubling it was and how challenging it was for you to, to cover the story. Mm-hmm. And, it's, and you know, if you haven't read the book, I'm talking from my, my experience reading the book. So I want to tell you what it how, what it should be, but I felt that there were three important stories: the story of the the murder, right? There was your personal journey through this story, and also this discussion about um, the Texas Department of Corrections and what was happening there. There was these three stories that were kind of overlaid. I mean, kind of they all interrelated, and they were all very informative and trans uh, informative and difficult to read, um, but necessary. Thank you. I think you did a very good job. Thank you. Uh, I, I really appreciate that. You won awards, getting all this recognition, so you don't need to hear that <laughs> fr- from me. But um, I, I want to get to where you are now. You took this assignment mm-hmm. that you really didn't want. You lost the job that you felt you deserved, and you're now you're now here in Jasper. You do the walk, and now you're learning all these details about the dragon. So I, I really want to share with our our listener the reality of what you learned through this through these three trials as far as brutality of what Mr. Bird went through. So I just want to warn, this may get somewhat graphic, mm-hmm. but I think people need to understand they do. But what race and violence, what it can lead to. I'm glad you mentioned the uh, Department of Corrections because I really don't think people who have not read the book, they don't understand that they were pretty much an accomplice when it comes to what turned these young men into haters. You had two of the three convicted men who spent time together in a Texas prison unit at Beto, uh, which I went to visit. I did a lot of research because I wanted to walk those places and see those places for myself, interview inmates, interview wardens, and it was very stressful. It was very stressful when I started writing the book. This was after, obviously, after the three trials were over. But during the three trials, I think we were in shock the reporters in the media section, we were comforting each other. Right. And and that's almost unheard of at a trial that I have worked with other reporters because, you know, people say, oh, you guys, are, you, you're thick-skinned and nothing bothers you, you're heartless. No, we're not heartless. A lot of us have families. We, we have love for our country. We love our communities. And so to hear this, there will be times in court, Monique Nation, uh, who was a reporter out of Houston and one of my best friends, she would just grab me because I would fall back, you know, and I would go, I can't listen to any more of this. And she would say, you're not leaving this courtroom. You know, right. I mean, who am I going to lean on? So I could see that throughout the media section that, you know, the details that we were learning, the things were so disturbing that these three young men were products of Jasper. And they started out in their childhoods, normal lives, Little League Baseball, black friends, growing up with sleepovers with black people. Right. So Jasper had a black mayor, a black school superintendent at that time. The Chamber of Commerce president was black. Jasper was 49% black. Right. And a lot of people didn't know that. And there's all these, there's all these complexities about race and interactions 
that is not, there's a lot of nuance mm-hmm. involved with this, this case and this dragon. Uh, well, you said there, you thought person very disturbing detail. Like what, some, tell one thing that really disturbed you. Okay, uh, at the first trial, John William King, the first defendant, was thought to be the mastermind. And so they wanted to try him first because they thought if they could get a capital murder conviction there, the other two might, you know, be easier for people to understand. He was covered every day in a bulletproof vest when he walked into the courtroom, and he was covered with long sleeve shirts because of the amazing amount of tattoos that John William King had. So the jurors were not treated to those tattoos, but the looks on their faces when they saw photos of the tattoos, because you are going to be photographed in prison. Every tattoo got, they made him hold up his arm, he had to be naked for those photographs. And in one of his arms is a photo, of, a, a tattoo of a black man hanging from a tree. And they definitely did not want jurors to see that. Right. So all of these details were coming out one by one. It was very tedious. You, you're learning everything. So just to learn where the tattoos, what they stood for that, that first day in court, right. that was hard. Right. We're going to continue this discussion about Joyce King's book, Hate Crime, The Story of a Dragon in Jasper, Texas. It is more than just a true crime novel. This is a memoir and an important contribution to the discussion about race and violence in America. You're listening to Unmasked. I'm Dr. Brian H. Williams. Stay with us.
Mask on I Am Royalty Radio. We are here with Joyce King talking about her book, Hate Crime, The Story of a Dragon in Jasper, Texas. So Joyce, you, um, you managed to you know, humanize these three men that mm -hmm. committed the murder without, I don't know, I, I wasn't sympathetic to them, but you humanized them by talking about their upbringing and their families and their experience in Department of, Department of Corrections. Which is in contrast, it's easy to just paint these people as monsters and call them all these pejorative terms to dehumanize them and detach ourselves from them. But you, you made a connection that I, I thought was very, very powerful. But I also want to talk about James Byrd because he got in the truck because because he knew the driver. That's they were right. acquaintances, so he had no fear getting in that truck that night. But you know, but he, obviously he ended up suffering a very horrific death. So tell us about you know, his, his life, his family, and then that evening. James Byrd Jr. was um, a very talented man. He loved to sing. He loved to entertain. He dreamed of fame. He, even though he was 49 years old, he, he had divorced, had three children who loved him. They lived in another city in Texas, but he was very loved. He had six sisters. He had a brother who lived in Dallas, as a matter of fact. So he came from a big, loving family, and and his one of his sisters told me that the only person he really ever heard in life was himself. Um, he had a, a drinking problem. He, he liked to drink. He liked to party with his friends, and that's what he was doing at a, a what they call a blue light house party that night, which was uh, at, the, at the home of a friend. I believe Jimmy Mays was his name. And so there was a lot of celebration, a lot of drinking, and he started walking home that evening. And his family had seen him earlier at a party, I think it was a, a, a for a niece, a bridal shower. So he had been with family, they were always giving him gifts. He was um, unemployed, um, people referred to him as an unemployed vacuum cleaner okay. salesman. <laughs> um, he walked all around Jasper because Jasper County had at that time about 30,000 residents, but the town of Jasper only had about 7,000 people, so a very small town. He felt comfortable. I, even if you don't know someone by name, you know their face, you know right. them from somewhere. Oh, I seen you over at so-and-so. So it was no problem for Mr. Bird to get in the truck with Sean Berry. It was his truck. Uh, they may have seen each other in the courthouse. Uh, they, they knew each other. Right. And Sean Berry's the one that offered him the ride. It's his truck. The other two men in the cab with him, Mr. Bird did not know, and they didn't know Mr. Bird. So it was just, um, and, and I find it, one of the details I give you is that he was walking down Martin Luther King, a very dangerous street for black people, apparently. Um, we have a nonviolent leader that, you know, is, is beloved, and yet his street is usually located in areas that are, are very, very violent or tough or have challenges. And, and so he was on MLK, minding his own business, trying to stagger home when they came upon him. They were looking for something fun to do. And um, John William King had warned Sean, don't, don't pick him up. He didn't want him in the truck. Right. So he put Mr. Bird in harm's way. I've always believed that. And I like what you said about um, humanizing the three defendants because I met their relatives and I wanted to, I mean, there were no winners. Sure. They lost too because they didn't understand why is this happening to our family. We didn't know this about him, or we thought that he was okay. He was getting better after prison. 
So I wanted people to know what their lives were like as young boys coming up in Jasper. And of course, Lawrence Russell Brewer, who did not live there at all, but came to visit, I, I looked at his life as well to see these were the boys next door right. in Texas, very much. And I wanted readers to understand that with me because I had a hard time wrapping my mind around what kind of people would chain a man to the back of a truck and take off and, and then rechain him when he comes off. And, and, and that was another thing in court. Whenever they would bring out the 24-foot-long chain, they would unravel it. So it's a logging chain, right? It's a logging chain. So it's one of those huge rusty chains that you see that you use to wrap around trees and, and help uproot them, that kind of chain. So I used to tease Assistant DA Pat Hardy, who was the cowboy prosecutor, the tough guy with the hat and the bald head. And I always said to him, why are you the only one that unravels the chain? And he said, hell, I'm the only one that can pick it up. <laughs> That's how heavy it was. Right. But it was unnerving. And you could see the pained looks on jurors' faces to listen to it. It sounded so much like history. And one of James Byrd's sisters, she told us, that's our heritage, those right. chains. She said she very much was thinking of her ancestors the first time she heard that chain unraveled in court. And, you know, when you talk about uh, things... And they had to sit through three different trials. Three different trials. <laughs> and, and so each time... You could hear a pin drop right. when that chain, because everyone is on the edge of their seats. Everyone is just so captivated, mesmerized, trying to figure out, I cannot believe this chain is this big and this long, 24 and a half feet. And I think I referred to it in, in the book as a very unusual murder weapon, which it was. Right. So you managed to, since you were there for so long, you managed to develop a lot of relationships with people on mm -hmm. both sides of the case, you know, defendants, families, law enforcement. Mm -hmm. uh, I want to talk about your relationship with the sheriff of Jasper. It seems like that became a very, uh, I mean, very close friendship. Mm -hmm. It had a certain amount of intimacy. Uh, it seems to have lasted to this day, is my impression. It, it has lasted to this day. I first got a call from uh, New York. Um, CBS was saying, you know, well, we, we would like for you to get an interview with Sheriff Billy Rolls, who arrested the trio within 24 hours of the crime, which is unheard of for a racial crime in the South. Um, I did not want to interview Sheriff Billy Rolls. That, I did not want him to be the first interview, but I found that he was. Uh, I caught him on the eve of the first trial, and um, I said, Sheriff, let's just sit back and, and try to, you know, get to know each other a little bit, but I was harder than that. I was I wanted to be hard-hitting. Right. I wanted to punch at him, and I wanted to ask the tough questions. And right off the bat, Brian, the first question I asked him, he got tears in his eyes, and I thought, oh, my God, he is really having a hard time dealing with this. And um, he was the one that told the Bird family uh, the devastating news, and I asked him about that Sunday afternoon on you know June 7th, 1998. What was that like, Sheriff? He said, well, you know, Miss King, he said, I, I really try to block that out. I don't remember a lot of the details of what happened that day. Uh, I found myself going to Billy Rolls a lot, uh, talking to him about race, uh, talking to him about his feelings. And over the months, we became very close. And uh, I think I provided a sounding board for him as well, because he said when he first saw me in the suit and the microphones and the people, he's all stuck up 
snob, <laughs> cutified. I said, oh, okay, From well. the big city of Dallas, right? Right, <laughs> right. And um, I later told him, I said, well, with those Wranglers and that shirt with all that starch, I said, do you want to know what I really thought about you? And he said, I kind of already know. You, <laughs> you, you thought I was a, a backward redneck. I said, no, I was a little kinder than that. I said, here comes wide earth. Right, and right. he said, oh, well, I like that one. That <laughs> one's a compliment. But I told him he was really the epitome of every law enforcement nightmare my parents had warned me about. Just pacify them. Just say yes, sir. Right. Just look straight ahead. Do not start any trouble because they're going to be looking for trouble. And right. he was dressed absolutely like everyone that had always given my parents a hard time when we were pulled over for no reason. Before racial profiling became a term in the legal lexicon, we knew Billy Rolls's stereotype people like him. And he shattered all those stereotypes for he you. He did. He was so humble. He was so kind. And he was so big-hearted. And he was deeply troubled by what he wanted and how this had had an impact on him. He told me that um, he had started drinking, um, not heavily or anything because he wasn't a drinker. But I said, well, what are you drinking? And he said, Jack Daniels. He said, but just for medicinal purposes. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great story. It's difficult to find humor in this because it's such a horrific event. Right. You can actually find humor in some of these relationships. But uh, yeah, we're going to take a break right now. Uh, author Joyce King, you can go to onemillionreaders.com to learn about the campaign to have one million readers read the book by the 20th anniversary. So it's onemillionreaders.com. You're listening to I Am Realty Radio. We'll be back in a moment.
Joyce King. We are discussing her book, Kate Klein, The Story of a Dragging in Jasper. It tells the story of the dragging death of James Byrd Jr., which occurred 20 years ago this month. The book is more than just a true crime story. It is a memoir of her transformation during the trials, as well as an important discussion about race relations in America. Joyce, thank you for being here. I want to talk more about your role in mm-hmm. the story. Uh, you meant there were times you're talking about how you were vomiting after hearing the uh, uh, testimony, specifically these Lee King. Right. Uh, I think you said you started having some drinks as well, right? Yes, I did. Um, so everybody involved with this was impacted. Tell me like about your journey through this time. I think for me, um, personally and professionally, the time each trial took, it meant two weeks away from my husband and my two children who were school age. This was a psychological, uh, just a, a bad time for me psychologically. Trying to, I felt guilt at being the mommy and, and being away. One of my children was in the first grade. He was just starting all this school. And to have that conversation every night after court, Mommy, are you coming home tonight? It was awful. And, and, all, and it, all three trials did happen when school was in session. How that old was, were they then? How, uh, how old are they now? Then, how old are, how old are they uh, now? Well, my, my baby was a first grader, um, so six, and my other son was 16. So yeah. he, he was 15, about to turn 16. So he was in high school. He had a much different attitude. He felt like I wasn't telling the nightly conversations with him. I would have to shift gears or, you know, Mom, are they all haters? Are they all racist? Can you walk around? Can you eat the food? And I was like, where are you getting these questions from? He said, well, everyone at my school is talking about my mom is in Jasper. They've heard you on the radio. Their parents are talking about you. And I'm just worried you and dad aren't telling me everything. So, yes, it was stressful. And the stress uh, came out in ways in in my face, my skin. My hair started falling out. And I thought, you know what? I have to find a way to remain somewhat healthy and to have the strength to cover this case. So the case took a year of my life, all of 1999. That's the three trials were stretched out over that time frame. So it was like a year of my life went to Jasper, and I could not wait until November when the last trial would finally be over, we'd be done, we could go. And a funny thing happened. I I said, I'm going to quit. And I went home and had that conversation, which was my husband was like, in what world are you? We're a two-income family. We've got this, and we've got the mortgage, and we've got you know, to think about the kids. And I said, no, I, something happened to me in Jasper and I really need time to go back. He said, oh, you're going back to Jasper. He said, well, how, how are you planning to do all of this? And I said, on your credit card, honey. <laughs> and that was not a great conversation right. either. So it, it, I knew though, I have to find a way to heal, not just physically, but emotionally, spiritually. And one of the things I adopted throughout the book was, Justice can't open the door to healing. So how do I heal from all that I've seen, all that I've learned, and all of these new emotions coming up in me about my own childhood and being a native Texan? And where is the reckoning for me? Where is? And I also wanted to do James Byrd some justice. I did not want people to forget him. I did not want people to forget what happened on Huff Creek Road. So I told his family, I said, I'm going to write something. I just have no idea what it is. Right. I don't have an agent. That's right. I left CBS Radio with no agent, no book deal, and no one who wanted the book. Okay, let's stop here for a second. Okay. <laughs> so 
before the story came, you were fired. Then you're rehired at a demotion. Right. Told to go cover the story. Took a year of your life. Mm-hmm. At the end, you quit again. And then I and had said nothing I'm done. lined up and planned up or planned. That's right. And said you were done. So that's a. Uh, it was brave. It, but I, courageous. I, I, I felt like my, but you know what, what is funny is the rejection letters. Um, it took a year to get an agent in New York. I wanted to do it the right way. And so I started plastering my office wall with the rejection letters. And there were many, enough to fill a wall. Sure. Oh, it sounds like a great book. Uh, one person, one agent in New York wrote to me back and she said, but I think it's a regional story. What? Really? The whole world was interested in Jasper, Texas. Right. So I found that it was just me. You don't really want my perspective on the story. So there's a lot of hidden racism, layers and layers and layers that we go through every day with the daily insults. Let's, t- let's, let's talk about that some. I think that that is a concept that many people, I feel, a listener may not understand mm-hmm. the nuance about the subtle way that racism is communicated to blacks on a daily basis. So tell us about your experience. I can give you one that happened for nearly every day of the 22 years and the nine radio stations in cities that I, my voice was heard across the country. So when I would go out to events and people would actually come to meet me, they would look all over the place, all through me and talk to people all around me. Where's Joyce King? And I would go right here and, oh my goodness, you're, you're black. Who, how did you learn to talk like that? Uh, okay. So th- and, and see, uh, th- that seemed like something innocuous and you should not get upset about, right? If, well, they thought it was a compliment. Exactly. They think that that's a backhanded compliment that says, well, you're not like the others. That is, and I don't think they realize that is essentially what the message is. Exactly. Is how, and, and even um, in newsrooms with my former co-anchor, who's, who's now uh, departed, and I, I love him to death, we would get in knockout, drag-out fights in the newsroom about the lead story. There was, I'll give you an example, there was a bank robbery in Dallas one afternoon, and the suspect was an African-American man about 5'8". He wanted me to go on the air with that uh, description. I said, dude, that's not a description. That's half the black men I know. Right, right. And I'm not doing it. He, well, I'm the senior partner, and we are putting that in the story. And I said, trust me, you're going to have a lot of police pulling black men over for no reason. And this was a daylight, middle of the afternoon, bank robbery, and they wanted this guy really bad. Apparently, he had hit quite a few banks. Right. But that's not a description. Now, if you tell me a bald-headed, light-skinned, African-American male, and maybe you know he's, he's got a beard or something, sure. I have a little bit to work with. So it's very nuanced. And I don't think a lot of people, when people say I'm not a racist, I have black friends, they don't realize they have racist tendencies. I'm not saying you are a racist. I'm, I'm saying you haven't examined all of the stereotypes that make you believe some of the things that you do believe. So, Brian, we're at a very interesting point in the country right now where we're discussing hate. We're discussing the fact that there are 954 active hate groups in America and many others that we don't know about. We're discussing how... And they're running for political office openly and proudly. And proud of it because... They feel that new voices, more prominent voices, have emboldened them to say and do whatever they want to people of color, to gay people, to lesbians, to people they feel, if you're different from me, I can can now finally tell you what I think of you. Right. Well, some of that is protected 
and it's called the Matthew Shepard Jonesburg Jr. Hate Crimes Law. We have a federal law, and I don't think people... That came out of this case. That came out of the Shepard and the uh, Bird case. Both of these gentlemen were killed the same year. I find it ironic that we're also looking at Matthew Shepard's 20-year anniversary of the hate crime that took his life in, in, in Laramie. So that is why you have the federal hate crime legislation named after these two men. I and tell people go look at go look up go look it up. For a listener that may not know about the Shepherd uh, crime, tell us about that just really quick. Matthew Shepherd was murdered uh, in Laramie, just outside Laramie, Wyoming, and uh, authorities there believe it was because he was gay. He was targeted, and that made it a protected hate crime. And they were prosecuted, and and they were convicted under that hate crime uh, status because they chose him. When you target someone based on their race, based on their religion, even if they have a handicap, if they're disabled, you are targeting a protected group, and it is a hate crime. I try to explain that to people, and they say, well, but you don't know what was in my mind. Yes, but I do know what you were saying. If you were calling slurs to someone while you were killing them, it's pretty clear it's a textbook hate crime. Right. Yeah. Right. Interesting. We're going to take another break here. We're here with author... Joyce King, talking about her book, Hate Crime, The Story of a Dragon in Jasper. You can learn more about this at onemillionreaders.com. That's the number one, millionreaders.com. You're listening to Unmasked on I Am Royalty Radio. Stay with us.
Unmasked on IM Realty Radio. We are fortunate to have author Joyce King in the studio with us today discussing her book, Hate Crime. It is now the 20th anniversary of the dragging of James Byrd Jr. that occurred in Jasper, Texas. So Joyce, you described many people in, in the book and um, the multiple facets of their personality. Uh, you said that you were always thinking about race. You yes. said that in the book. What does that mean you're always thinking about race? I think it means as soon as most African Americans that I know step out of our private zone, our comfort space, whether that's home or a place that we've carved out, we feel under attack. We don't know where it comes from being pulled over, being profiled, or someone hating me, and I don't even know that person. So you always have to be prepared, have your guard up. It's exhausting. Right. And I have lived it, and especially being a daughter of the South, I understand that there must be reconciliation. First, there has to be acknowledgement. I think that uh, what happened in Jasper 20 years ago, and now this anniversary, uh, these are two teachable moments, and I'm honored to be a part of both. Um, I lecture to a lot of college students that never heard of Mr. Bird because we haven't done a good job of teaching them about this hate crime. So I reached out to 200 presidents of universities, and I said, please make this required reading so that we tell young people that there is another side of history that they don't know. So I think what will help heal us as a nation is acknowledgement, is understanding, comprehending what we are taught, told, and stop denying that it happened. Um, I spoke at the King Center in Atlanta, and, and I was very thrilled to get that invitation. And my topic that day was why the murder of James Byrd Jr. was a modern-day lynching. And it upset a lot of people. And I said, good, because I'm not here to make you feel good. I'm not here to hold your hand. I'm here to tell you the truth right. and to present it in such a way that, you know, I'm not trying to make anyone feel guilty on purpose. But history is what it is, and then we shut it out, whether that's what happened to Native Americans, the Trail of Tears, whether it's a, the Holocaust, whether it is slavery, lynching, Jim Crow. When we shut out the truth, that's what makes things worse. So how do you respond to – I agree with you mm – -hmm. How do you respond to a listener who will sit here and think, come on, Joyce, just, just get over it. That's yeah. in the past. I had nothing to do with that. Why? How do you make that person <laughs> care? That's a very good question. That's a great question. As a matter of fact, let me give you an example of uh, where I was confronted uh, recently. Uh, I, I was invited to the city of Dallas um, a few months back to speak to the mayor's Confederate task force. And the presentation was 10 minutes, which is an eternity compared to citizens getting 30 and 60 seconds. And I was asked uh, by the office to give an overview of what life was like for black people in Dallas when the statue of Robert E. Lee went up, which would I believe was 1936. Well, I went back and gave a history of things that happened, including the 1910 downtown lynching of Allen Brooks, where you had thousands of people on Main and Ackert cheering taking photos. Their little kids were with them. Right. It was a, like a picnic. So I wanted people, you first have to know the history of your city, and you actually need to understand what you're asking people to do. So here's my answer to the question. If you want me to get over slavery, to get over lynching, 
to get over all of the negativity and the bad things that have come out of that alone, why are you still embracing your Confederate heroes at the same time you're asking me to get over an era from the sa- everything is from that same period? You can't have it both ways. Right, right. If you're embracing your heroes and saying, this is who I love, this is my America, you're leaving out a chunk of people that helped build this country. And our perspectives have been deleted, erased, minimized, or altogether absent. So this is an opportunity now in this country to be more inclusive. We have to start teaching young people the true history when they're in elementary school because that way they don't read in textbooks, and this was in an actual textbook, that slaves were brought here as, quote, guest workers. Right, right. What? Hello? No, we, we were not guest workers, and we were not immigrants. Right. It was a forced immigration. So I think when we tell little children lies, they grow up believing they're superior. They grow up believing the color line in America. They grow up believing everybody like me is the best. So the next part of that, you convince them, so we get the person, the listener, to say, okay, I, George King, very convincing argument. Now, how is that going to actually make the country better? How, how do we, what does that, what kind of, what does progress look like? Like, how do you envision, you know, we come together, we reckon with our past, monuments go away, stop talking about slavery. Well, I think it's a slow process for a lot of people, and I hear it from all over the world from people that have read this book and said it changed their lives. And I think what's fascinating to me is they're just beginning. It's, they're not even totally transformed. Uh, I'll give you an example. I was in Beaumont to do a book reading, and I guess it was out on the news. It happened to mention what hotel I was at. I was like, why? And I got a call from, um, I said he was a lumberjack. He's not a lumberjack. I, I, I don't know what his profession is, but he was big enough to be a lumberjack. But he called the hotel, and and they patched it through to my room, and he said, uh, are you brave enough to meet with a good old boy? He said, I just want to talk with you. I'm not going to do anything to you. And I said, how did you know what hotel I was in? And he said, well, I saw it on the news. (laughs) And I (laughs) said, okay. (laughs) I know. Long story short, I agreed to meet with him. And when I got down to the lobby, I realized I forgot to ask him what he looks like. Right. He has the advantage, obviously. He he knew what I looked like. He'd read the book. My photo's in the book. And so every time a white guy would come through the double doors of the hotel, we go, are you? No, you're not him. Right. Okay. <laughs> and it's always, oh, let me stop approaching white men. It looks like I'm working. Okay. Right, right, right. <laughs> and finally, oh, in the parking lot, I saw this huge guy, six four, six five, with the overalls. And, you know, and I said, oh, Lord, please don't let that be him. That was him. Right. Because he was so big, I was afraid immediately. And I thought, okay, this is not going to go well. He came in, and the only stipulation I had was I asked, could I record the conversation? We sat down in the hotel lobby, and uh, he talked about you know, growing up with a, a, a grandfather who took them out of school every time black kids got enrolled in the schools. He talked about a grandfather who allowed them to watch good times, but they couldn't watch the Jeffersons. And I said, really? Why? He said, because he did not want to see successful black people. And George Jefferson was an affront to his grandfather. Right. So he grew up with all this racism and hatred. And he also told me that he thought the murder of James Byrd Jr. was a drug deal gone bad until he read the book. Right. So when I say knowledge is power, it is the first step toward healing 
I'm not asking people to cry and say they're sorry and, and, and you know, well, we, we've got to have all this guilt. I'm saying we need to be realistic about it. We have to teach young people. This is why our generation is so messed up and the generations, you know, before us, because we have not dealt with this. And your generation needs to deal with right. it so we can defeat hatred, right. bigotry, ignorance, and racism. There, and there's a lesson there about if you know someone's story, it's hard to hate them. There's power in mm -hmm. testimonials and mm -hmm. proximity. You just have to have the courage to walk towards what scares you. Well, this gentleman, when he called the hotel, he introduced himself. He said, Miss King, I'm a recovering racist. And I said, well, buddy, how recovered are you? Because <laughs> right. you're asking to meet with right. me. I just want to know what I'm getting into. And, but he and stepped forward. I he mean, did. I thought I admired him for that, and uh, we stayed in touch many years. Right. Uh, I gave him my phone number. Uh, he used to call me and tell me, well, I ran into this situation today, and I'm really confused by it. And he, he would call me and say, you know, I don't understand affirmative action. And we'd have a long, but it was therapeutic for him coming from the background that he came from. And it also always helps me to not deal in stereotypes, to not immediately dismiss anyone for any reason, because I don't want them doing it to me. Yeah, speaking of stereotypes, it reminds me of a story in your book where you talked about the hockey lesson. Oh, yeah. And we're going to talk, <laughs> talk about that after the break, because I, I had to read that twice. <laughs> the, uh, it, was a, it was an interesting passage. But um, you're, you're touching lives. You're definitely changing lives. I, I think you realize that. You're listening to Unmasked on I Am Royalty Radio. Dr. Brian Williams here in the studio with Joyce King. You should go to her, her website, onemillionreaders.com. That's one, it's just the number one, millionreaders.com. We'll be back in a moment.
Dr. Brian H. Williams here with Joyce King. Joyce, we're coming to the closing of our show. I just have a few more questions. I've had a phenomenal time. I've learned a lot today. We were discussing her book, Hate Crimes, the story of a drag queen in Jasper, Texas. So you were talking about stereotypes mm -hmm. before the break, but in the book, you shadowed another one for me where you started talking about your love of hockey. <laughs> so uh, tell us about that, please. Well, much to the chagrin of my family, uh, who could not understand, well, what is your fascination with following that little puck uh, right. around the rink? And, and who can see it on TV anyway? But I, I, I love the Dallas Stars, particularly when uh, uh, Bob Ganey was there and uh, uh, got to meet him, interview him, and um, it, it was just illuminating to present to him my vision to bring more black fans to the stands and also to introduce the sport of hockey to a generation before they get to that age where they're like, well, I don't know anything about the sport. Right. I just felt like you know we should have African-American children on skates who want to pursue hockey because that's another avenue for them. I don't think a lot of people know. Again, we're talking about history. Sure. There was a black championship hockey team in Canada. So when you when you read all, an all black team? Yeah, they were all black. Oh, I didn't, and I didn't they know played that. against and they played against other teams. So when you look at the fact that you can't say black people did not play hockey, they very much did. And uh, so I, I had a very interesting uh, set of conversations with Bob Ganey who uh, as I said uh, in the book, has five Stanley Cup rings. So he was very much, um, you know, a legend, still is, even though he's retired, still is a legend in Montreal because he played for the Montreal Canadiens so long. And then he came to uh, coach Dallas and then go on to be general manager and was the general manager when the Dallas Stars, Mike Madonna, all those guys, when they won the Stanley Cup. And, of course, I was fit to be tied. I was, uh, my family could not live right. with me because, you know, even in watching the sport at home, I, w I, I would have my Stars jersey on. I was screaming. And I went to a few games where, you know, I thought they were going to eject me because, uh, you know, I would bang on the plexiglass. <laughs> you know, I, I was you know, that much into it. And then I caught a whiff of myself in the mirror, and I was like, who is that? Right. Calm down. You know. I, 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 I say <laughs> I, I briefly followed hockey when uh, Wayne Gretzky came to play for the uh, oh, yeah. L.A. Kings that back in the early 90s. Yes. So I had a little phase there, but have not followed it since then. But that's... That's in, that's impressive. Thank you. Just bringing the the book full circle, you're signing your story. We took it under duress, essentially. Mm -hmm. Coming to the end of the book and talking about your journey during this process, there you you wrote that you you didn't miss. You didn't, I mean, I'm paraphrasing it. Correct mm -hmm. me if I'm wrong. You didn't really miss it because suddenly the professional had merged with the personal. So you're looking yes. at your life differently. If I'm or Put the words in your mouth. Just uh, no. I think all of us that, on our individual journeys, Brian, we are ever evolving, which is the mark of a good human being. You question yourself. You question everything. You want to know more. You want to feel like I'm having an impact somehow on my family, on my community. So I think that I was evolving in so many ways, and I wanted to test that theory. Does justice open the door to healing? How can there be healing for the town of Jasper? How can there be healing for me? How can there be healing for America? How can we say we are never going to let another hate crime like this happen anywhere? So I, I, I began lecturing and uh, talking. I never went back to radio. I, I missed it terribly. Sure. 
Um, I was fortunate enough to be invited to do town halls like CNN, uh, BET, TV One, NPR, you know, so I, I, I was on the other side of the mic answering questions. But I wanted people to better understand history plays such a role in the kind of healing that I'm talking about. And I don't think it's something legislation can do. Legislation cannot change hearts. It takes people changing hearts at the grassroots level. Talk to your neighbor. Stop looking through your neighbor. Stop looking over your neighbor. Stop stereotyping people you know nothing about. I've heard people say just this past week, everything I learned about black people I got from music videos. What? Okay, well, you're missing big chunks of the culture then, buddy. (laughs) So that's all I'm saying is don't dismiss the perspectives of people who don't look like you because you never had to listen to them anyway. Right. Now you need to listen if we're going to save our country. I mean, the country is in ter- terrible trouble. It's in distress. Right. You've got people hating folks for no other reason than they don't look like you. Well, you have contribution to this whole discussion is your book, Hate Crime, but I've followed your columns in the Dallas Morning News. I, those are always impressive. That's Thank a bar you. that I'm trying to reach <laughs> myself. You're a good writer. Um, so what, what else are you doing now? Um, on this, well, you said justice comes, healing comes from justice. I, 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 what I'm doing now is I'm sticking with making sure justice is available. Uh, a lot of people know my work uh, with the Innocence Project. I'm not with them anymore, but I was honored to be the first non-lawyer uh, on the board of directors, and uh, we helped change the law in Texas. We helped get the Timothy Cole compensation law passed. Uh, I work with about 12 exonerees. Uh, Texas leads the nation in uh, DNA exonerations, and Dallas County is number one. So I did, I did a lot of work. There and that that really was very fulfilling and heartbreaking at the same time. As you know, I I fell in love with one of the exonerated men who died in 2012. Um, James only James Wooded was the 17th Dallas man exonerated, and uh, James is a big exoneree star. 60 Minutes profiled his story. Sadly, James could not function in freedom. He had a lot of problems. Uh, we were bombarded by his issues. I tried to take care of James, but um, James could not really feel freedom the way I wanted him to just know right. his humanity was valued. Sure. Prison, he did 27 years, by the way, for a murder that he did not commit. He only got to enjoy four years of freedom, and tragically he died on the floor of a Dallas County jail cell. That was very difficult for me. Um, that happened in 2012, so for the last uh, five and a half years, close to six years now, I have been uh, trying to bounce back trying to get over that heartbreak and doing things that I know that James wouldn't want me to do. So one of the things that I did to keep a promise to him was I did a review of a death row case in Louisiana. The young man was only 28 years old. He spent three years at Angola and he professed his innocence the whole time. And I said, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll look at it. I want to look at this case because I was fascinated. He had been uh, convicted of murdering his one-year-old son. So as you might imagine, being given that file and trusted by that DA in Louisiana was huge for me to be in that DA's office. And I looked at the entire case, and of course the hardest thing was seeing a baby in a diaper, in autopsy photos, right. a baby on a, on a slab. And I wanted to, to, to have justice for the baby and for the dad if that was possible. Long story short, at the end of 2016, I was in the courtroom in Louisiana when that young man was set free. He never went back to Angola. I mean, he could have ended up executed. Right. But I, uh, my finding was that there was no murder. 
So I have continued to try to do innocence work where I can. I did a second case, and um, I'm, I'm not going to talk about that one, but I have loved the work of justice because it shows people that, oh, my God, I didn't know that was happening. Right. I didn't know that mass incarceration was a product of Jim Crow. Uh, I like what Brian Stevenson said uh, recently when he talked about his the lynching museum opening in Montgomery. And he said, if you're listening, Brian Stevenson executive is the executive director for the Equal Justice Initiative, okay. EJI.org. Uh, I met Brian when he uh, spoke in Dallas at SMU, and, and, and one of my big crushes, one of my one of my heroes. And I'm not stalking you, Brian. I'm really not. But anyway. <laughs> if he's listening to the show, I'll be very honored. <laughs> but I, I just, I love what he said when he said slavery did not end. It simply evolved. Exactly. It kept evolving. And so you had Jim Crow. Now today you have mass incarceration because of how the justice system impacts black, brown, poor people, right. and mentally ill people. We can't leave them out. Yep. So I, I, I have worked very hard. and all those things. Right, yeah. right. All, all of those things you have to look at because they are linked. They are connected in history. And so that's why, for me, the push for history is so big. And, and I'm most proud of the last few months of being uh, the author of some of the pieces that ran in the Hidden History series for the Dallas Morning News. I didn't know they were going to be so hugely popular. Yes, and I, I must. that's where I was first learned of you. So if you have not read these articles, Dallas Morning News, uh, Google Joyce King. Or OneMillionReaders.com. I've posted six of those pieces from the Hidden History series. Uh, one of the pieces, for example, we open up and tell you about three slaves who were unjustly hanged in downtown Dallas when they were falsely accused of starting an 1860 fire that consumed downtown Dallas. Guess what? They didn't do it. But they were hanged in Dealey Plaza long before JFK was assassinated there. And people called me, they were like, why didn't I know this? Right. Because you don't know history. Exactly. So tell us more about OneMillionReaders.com. That, that it's a campaign. Okay. And it, what it is, it's designed to honor this 20th anniversary of the crime. But also, I am begging a million people to finally have the courage to read this book. Brian, you don't know how many times over the years <laughs> I heard, you seem like a nice lady, but I can't read that. Right. And so now I'm asking... If you can, give it to a college student, buy it for a college student. And Amazon Audible has just released it. Maybe you have an easier time listening to it if you want to do that. But I definitely would like for a million pe people to pick up this story, share this story, give it to a college student, read it if you can. I hope that you can. I will be there with you on the page. And the proceeds go to more wrongful conviction reviews. And the proceeds also go to help save an HBCU in Texas. Author Joyce King, thank you very much for spending time with us today. Thank you for having me. Her book is Hate Crime, the story of a dragging in Jasper, Texas. And I will tell you, it is more than just a true crime novel. Please go past the title. This is a very personal journey and an important story about race and violence in America. And I think it's an important contribution towards reckoning with our history and healing for our, our country. I'm Dr. Brian H. Williams. You're listening to Unmasked, and we are on I Am Royalty Radio. Also got to thank our engineer on the board today, Mr. Ty Ford. He has his show, Ty and the Sips. You can listen to that 8 to 10 p.m. Central Time every Tuesday night. Thank you for joining us. We'll see you next time.